BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the presidential race in my members-only Inner Circle Club. You'll receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here is a special offer for my podcast listeners. Join my Inner Circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. And if you sign up for a one- or two-year membership, you'll get 10% off your membership price and a VIP Fast Pass to my live events. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. Use the code podcast at checkout. Sign up today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast and use the code podcast. Hurry, this offer expires February 14th. On this episode of Newt's World, today we're not just facing one enemy, we're facing the greatest range of global threats from any time in our history. But how can we learn from surprise attacks from the past to foresee the threats of the future? There are very few issues more important in designing our national security than getting a real understanding of the world as it exists and finding out how we can get ahead of the curve so that we, in fact, are prepared when a threat occurs. To discuss this, I have two really interesting guests. Steve Toomey, the author of Countdown to Pearl Harbor, The Twelve Days to the Attack, and Eric Dahl, author of Intelligence and Surprise Attack, Failure and Success from Pearl Harbor to 9-11 and Beyond.
the whole idea of writing a book called Countdown to Pearl Harbor, The 12 Days to the Attack, is really helpful because you go really into a lot of detail. What led you to decide to write this? I think it's a very important contribution. I simply took a vacation to Honolulu and with the family went out to the Arizona Memorial. And I don't think anyone who goes to that memorial can stand there and not be befuddled as to how this happened. And I began reading up on it. And, of course, there's no lack of books about Pearl Harbor, so it's somewhat of an audacious choice to decide to write one. But I thought that the drama of the days prior to the attack had not really been adequately conveyed. I didn't want to write necessarily a military book. I wanted to write a book about the people making, or in some cases not making, the decisions regarding what information they were receiving and what it meant. And the 12 days is actually uh, kind of obvious. It's the 12-day period from the morning that the Japanese fleet set sail from its secret location until 12 days later they arrived off the Hawaiian Islands and launched their planes. It seemed to me a perfect window to concentrate not so much on the attack, which I think has been the subject of many books and movies, uh, but on how we got to the attack. It seems to me that there's a Japanese story, but there's also an American story here, and that they're kind of parallel. They're not dancing together. I think it would surprise most people to know that in the days prior to the attack, the whole country had a good sense that the United States was very likely to be at war in the Pacific. We'd been negotiating with the Japanese over their behavior, in the Far East, and we were getting all kinds of signals, both public and private, in the sense that only the government knew. Walter Lippmann wrote a column on the 5th of December saying, we're on the verge of all-out war in the Pacific. So there was a sense that time was running out. We did not know, of course, exactly what the Japanese intended to do, but it was clear they were getting more desperate. We were reading their diplomatic cables because we had broken their code. And we knew that many of their ships were on the move. We knew that from interpreting radio signals. We knew it from coast watchers in China, where many of the Japanese ships set sail from, and Formosa. And we knew those ships were headed south toward the Philippines, toward Malaya, toward the Dutch East Indies. So the sense that something was going to happen was extremely great. I like to tell people that the surprise of December 7th was not that war came to us, but where it came to us. It's Pearl Harbor as a target that was the surprise, not the war. It actually had a Sunday morning surprise attack at Pearl Harbor as part of a fleet practice. So they knew it was possible. Why do you think they were as surprised at Pearl Harbor? Several reasons, of course. You're absolutely right that an attack on Pearl Harbor as the opening act of a war had been theorized in the United States for years. As you mentioned, they had conducted naval exercises based on that premise. And perhaps most remarkable of all, just a few months prior to the actual attack in March, two military officers wrote a report that actually looks like they had gone into the future and seen what was coming because it was so accurate. It theorized about one or more carriers arriving off Hawaii undetected and launching their planes about 300 miles out and catching the fleet unaware at its docks in Pearl Harbor. So 
this possibility had been talked about extensively, and everyone knew it. And then they sort of put it to the side, like it could happen, but we don't think it's going to happen. It seems such an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. And I think that's something we have to acknowledge with the Japanese, that militarily this was an astonishing feat. Part of that problem is that we thought the Japanese tended to view a strategic or tactical situation in the same way we did. We thought their logic was like our logic. They would conclude that to attack Pearl Harbor and to attack the United States was folly. They would lose the war, which, of course, they did. But we thought that would be so obvious that they would not seek war with the United States. Our ambassador in Tokyo, a man by the name of Joseph Grew, who had been there 10 years, knew the Japanese a lot better than most people. And he specifically warned Washington in November of 1941, you have to be prepared for them to do something that makes no sense to us. He said it might be suicidal for them to attack us, but you can't rule out them taking that kind of action because their values are not our values. He strikes me as virtually the only person who really understood what the Japanese were capable of. I think it's George Marshall who gives a speech saying that the Japanese can't fight us because their cities are paper and we would burn them. And that's part of why we kept moving B-17s to the Philippines as a direct threat, which was a great surprise when I ran across the speech, because I'd always thought our attitude was so tough because of Pearl Harbor. But in fact, this is a pre-Pearl Harbor speech threatening the mass destruction with firebombing because it was the logical consequence of how we thought about war after World War I. There's a tension, it seems to me, between scattering the aircraft so they can't be destroyed from the air and bunching them up so they can be protected against sabotage, and that at Pearl, they had gone almost totally in favor of avoiding sabotage at the risk, of course, of creating very good target zones for the aircraft. What is your read of that, the tension that was involved in trying to make that decision? You raise a very good point, and at the core of that issue is the fact that there was no unified command in Hawaii. There was the Navy and the Army, and neither had supervisory jurisdiction over the other. So they were making independent decisions. They were communicating, and they would meet often, but the two commanding officers had no authority over each other. And when information began to arrive in Pearl that things were building, the Army commander, a man by the name of Walter Short, made the decision that the only real threat he faced as commander of Hawaii's army forces was from sabotage. And so he grouped all his planes on his airfield in the manner that made it easiest to protect them against somebody trying to sneak over the fence. The threat of sabotage through Japanese Americans of first or second generation in Hawaii was always greatly exaggerated by the Army and the FBI. There was no sabotage at any point. On the other hand, the Navy saw its role as fighting out at sea, not protecting itself in Hawaii, and its planes were not grouped against sabotage. Actually, many of them were at sea on December 7th aboard two aircraft carriers. 
And the mentality on both sides was that there really wasn't much chance of an air raid of significance on Hawaii. The threat was, in the Army's case, one of sabotage, and I never got the sense the Navy worried too much that its bases could be sabotaged. Why do you think there was this dramatic underestimation of the Japanese Navy? I have to say, I think some of the problem was a sense of racial superiority. It's a little disconcerting today to read some of the things that were written about the Japanese in a military sense in the 30s and early 40s. They were regarded as sort of mechanically and technically not very capable. It was thought that their pilots literally could not fly very well because of various alleged physiological defects, like they had a bad sense of balance, and that they weren't good mechanics. They couldn't fix things. They couldn't innovate. The cartoons and caricatures that would appear in the press usually showed cute little Japanese soldiers with gigantic glasses and buck teeth. There really was a stereotypical image of the Japanese So there was this belief, and as you alluded to earlier, one of the places where it came back to bite the Pacific Fleet was on the issue of torpedoes. A torpedo dropped from an airplane plunges fairly deeply before it levels off and begins its run to the target. And Pearl Harbor, at its deepest, was only 45 feet. And the theory was that anybody attempting an air raid using torpedoes would discover that their torpedoes simply plunged into the bottom of Pearl Harbor and did no one any harm. The Pacific Fleet received information that tests were showing improvements in air torpedoes. They were not dropping as deeply into the ocean. But Admiral Kimmel, the Pacific commander in Hawaii, still believed he had immunity from torpedo attack because the harbor was too shallow. And the Japanese, unbeknownst to them, in Pearl Harbor had actually altered their torpedoes in a very subtle way after many tests. They put an extra fin on the torpedo so that it did not rotate as much as it was falling through the air, which reduced the depth to which the torpedo plunged. And, of course, on December 7th, by far the greatest damage to the Pacific Fleet came from airdrop torpedoes. The one great exception is the Arizona, which was destroyed by a gravity bomb. But almost all the other big ships were damaged, not by bombs primarily, but by torpedoes, and in some cases hit multiple times. So that assumption that the Japanese could not innovate, could not correct this problem, which they knew how deep Pearl Harbor was, that assumption proved literally fatal. Because of the time differences, they actually knew about Pearl Harbor and yet they are still caught on the ground and lose most of their air force in the opening hour or two. There's something about trying to move from a peacetime military to a wartime military that seems to make it almost impossible to move with speed. I don't know if you looked at all at the degree to which MacArthur and the people in the Philippines were surprised, but in some ways it seems to me it's even more surprising how surprised they were because they had hours of notice plus The original assumptions had been that the Japanese would move south along the China coast and next to the Philippines, so that most planning assumed that the Philippines were much more at risk than Pearl Harbor. I mean, do you have any thoughts on how they managed to avoid learning about any of that? 
I have long been baffled, as you are, by MacArthur's actions that day. Frankly, I think his actions were more damnable than what happened to the commanders in Hawaii for the reason you cited. He had knowledge that war had begun. He had knowledge that Japanese forces were moving in his area, yet all those B-17s that had been flown to the Philippines to replenish his air force and act as a deterrent, many if not all of them were disabled on the runway. I've never quite understood why MacArthur wasn't disciplined more for that. I guess the answer is that we needed someone to be a figure to lead in the Pacific, and perhaps they settled on that as a reason not to do anything about it. The Philippines were the place where we thought that would probably be hit. In fact, on December 7th, when the realization reached Washington of the fact that there was a deadline discovered in a Japanese diplomatic cable from Tokyo to Washington, a deadline referring to 1 p.m., Eastern time is something going to happen. The first reaction in Washington was to send alerts to the Pacific again, and the priority was the Philippines. Everyone thought the Philippines were the place likely to be hit first. I assume MacArthur must have had the same sense, and I would note that his counterpart, the naval commander in the Philippines, a man by the name of Thomas Hart, he reacted much differently. He dispersed his ships. He didn't have many, but he took them to sea. And so MacArthur's behavior has always been a mystery to me. In terms of being unprepared for war, if I remember correctly, the messages were sent by Western Union. On December 7th, when this realization that something was about to happen, they first tried to send the messages to the Philippines and Hawaii via Army radio. And there was atmospheric interference. They couldn't reach Hawaii directly, so they ended up sending telegrams, which were not opened and decoded until the attack was well underway that afternoon. Right there, of course, there being a lesson in making sure your communications are intact. Coming up, what we can learn from the Pearl Harbor attack in 1941. I was delighted when the first sponsor of Newt's World was Oxford Gold Group. I love entrepreneurial startups of people who are eager, willing to go out and do new and different things. And as a historian, I know that having a balanced portfolio is a very important thing. And they offer financial information and background information that I think uh, is very helpful. So whatever you decide to do in the end, I think you'll find the information they have is really worthwhile, and that's why I'm delighted to introduce you to the Oxford Gold Group. Most of us still remember what happened to our 401ks and IRAs back in 2008 during the financial crash. In a flash, millions of hardworking Americans lost more than half of their retirement and savings. Many of us still haven't recovered those losses, even as the stock market reached record highs. Did you know that while the stock market crashed, the price of gold and silver skyrocketed? In fact, investors who had the foresight to diversify a portion of their retirement and savings before the 2008 meltdown watched as the price of gold and silver went up over 300%. While millions of Americans lost their nest eggs in the stock market, many others were able to make gains most people had never seen before. Call the Oxford Gold Group today at 1-833-327-9472 or visit oxfordgoldgroup.com newtsworld and request your free investor's guide. 
Investing in precious metals with the Oxford Gold Group is safe and secure. We tailor investment packages to suit any portfolio. Don't risk the future of your IRA, 401k, or savings on paper investments. Protect your retirement and savings with physical assets like gold and silver. Nobody knows when the next financial crisis will happen. Get prepared by talking to the Oxford Gold Group by calling one 327 9472 or by visiting oxfordgoldgroup.com slash newtsworld. Financial security is just a phone call away. We misunderstood how, given the nature of Bushido and the spirit of the samurai, desperation would lead to an attack, and they misunderstood how launching a surprise attack, especially on a Sunday morning, guaranteed that we would be relentlessly ferocious and actually eliminated the possibility of the kind of negotiated agreement which was the core of their strategy. So the temporary advantage they gained at Pearl, they threw away strategically because it just guaranteed that we would mobilize totally. Absolutely. They misread us as much as we misread them. They did not appreciate the outrage that would be created by simultaneously going through the fiction of negotiations in Washington while your ships were sailing 3,000 miles to the Hawaiian Islands to pull off a sneak attack. Technically, the final message breaking off negotiations was to be delivered by their ambassador before the planes arrived over Pearl. Due to various translation and decoding problems, the message was not delivered until after the attack had begun. But I don't think it would have made much difference if the message breaking off negotiations and indicating great Japanese dissatisfaction, if that had been delivered an hour or 90 minutes before the bombs fell, I don't think Americans would have been any less outraged by the fact that it was a sucker punch while technically coming after the declaration of war. I think it's important to remember, and I think it's hard for generations after Pearl to recognize, in the 165-year history of the nation to that point, this was the single most shattering and unexpected event in the history of the country. The public had been told over and over how competent the Navy was, how vigilant, and how strong. There had been stories all through the summer of 1941 about how our reconnaissance planes were 24-7 vigilant around Pearl Harbor, flying hundreds of miles out to sea, making sure that no one was out there. Well, none of that was true. The Navy didn't even do that in the final hours before the attack, despite all the incoming evidence, which was probably husband Kimmel's greatest failure, not to begin an air search. The shock was just astounding, and the resolve to win was made concrete that day. And I think the Japanese just never anticipated how angry people would be at what they had done. Well, and I think it was compounded again as as a cultural problem because it didn't occur to them that attacking on a Sunday morning would sort of magnify everything. People are at home on Sunday, they're relaxed, they're having Sunday lunch, and suddenly the radio says, Pearl Harbor has been attacked. The country by the end of that day was just seething with anger. Lines appeared outside the Army offices all over the country, people willing to sign up immediately. One of the things that makes that day so shocking 
is that the whole country knew the world had been at war for two years and that we had been, to one degree or another, staying out of it. And this attack immediately told the entire country that their sons, their brothers, their husbands, their uncles were all going to go off someplace, if not to war, then into defense plants, and that this was going to be a long haul and universal experience for the country. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Next, how 9-11 changed the way we view intelligence gathering. It's the holiday season, and what better time to give than now? You know, you can't take your money with you. Go to deltarescue.org newt and learn more about how you can support Delta Rescue through estate planning this holiday. Delta Rescue is celebrating 40 years and is the only no-kill, care-for-life home for more than 1,500 dogs, cats, and horses that have all been abandoned in the wilderness. It is a mountaintop ranch in Los Angeles beautifully landscaped and surrounded by rolling hills, the perfect sanctuary for our lost furry friends. You know how I feel about animals. They are pure souls who only want to give love and get love unconditionally. What founder Leo Grillo is doing at Delta Rescue is amazing, helping to save and care for these innocent creatures so they can live safely and in peace. For more information, go directly to deltarescue.org newt and ask for a free estate package. And since it's the holiday season, enjoy the movie Magic right there on the website free. It's a heartwarming story of a dog that is an angel played by Christopher Lloyd. Go to deltarescue.org newt, watch this holiday family movie, and request Newt's free estate planning package. Again, my package is only available on deltarescue.org newt. What got you to focus on the whole issue of intelligence and surprise attacks? Well, I got interested originally after 9-11 with the renewed problem of surprise terrorist attacks. But I thought that it would be useful to study both terrorist attacks and more conventional military surprise attacks of the sort that we used to worry about back during the Cold War, during the first half of my military career, but which had gone out of favor, and we didn't worry much about that until a few years ago. Was it the whole notion of how do we avoid things like 9-11, or what did you hope the outcome would be? Yes, absolutely. Trying to find out how we can better use intelligence, whether collect intelligence or analyze intelligence, to stop bad things from happening, to really break what often intelligence experts have called the first law of intelligence failure, which is that after something bad happens, we always can look back and we see there were warnings, there were clues, there was intelligence, but somehow we didn't use it or we didn't understand it in time to prevent something from happening. And I wanted to break that first law of intelligence failure. There are really big differences, say, between Pearl Harbor or the Israeli failure at Yom Kippur in 73 and 9-11. There's a question of indicators, there's a question of sometimes a failure of imagination, to what degree do you think that it's possible to have a relatively surprise-proof system? Well, you can't eliminate surprise altogether. That's certainly a function of human nature, and certainly we've learned that in history. But I think actually there 
are a lot more similarities in the nature of the intelligence failures when we're dealing with terrorist attacks and conventional military-style surprise attacks. More similarities than I think most people had recognized, and my book was one of the first to try to look at those both together. And in fact, one of the ways I tried to look at them, and I think a, a very useful method, is to try to look not only at intelligence failures, which most of us study, that's why we have commissions and blue ribbon studies after failures, but I also tried to look at intelligence successes to try to figure out what happens successfully, what goes right, and how we can replicate that. I remember seeing George Tenet being worried about al-Qaeda and worried about bin Laden, but he just felt that there was pressure building. And I remember I was part of the Hart Rudman Commission, and we went to see the Secretary of Defense at the time, and he said to us as a group, this was late in 2000, he said, we're going to get hit. He said, I don't know where, but he said, I'm just telling you, there are too many indicators and there are too many smart people on the other side trying to figure this out. And somewhere they're going to find a way to hit us. And it was a very sobering conversation of just before the Clinton team left office. And I think that there was a real problem because I think the Bush administration didn't want to think about it. They were very focused on Russia and very focused on traditional threats. And whatever the indicators were, neither the system, the FBI, the CIA, etc., which were not swapping information, nor the decision makers, really wanted to focus their time, energy, and resources on going after the possibility of, of uh, 9-11. What did you discover when you looked at 9-11? Well, I think there are two main points that you just brought out there that certainly apply to 9-11 and also to our even greater problems today. The first is that the type of warning that you were describing that we did receive from several Blue Ribbon Commissions leading up to 9-11, those were strategic, big-picture warnings. And there's a big debate within the intelligence community and among analysts, and sometimes it kind of seems like a little inside the beltway, about whether we need more strategic, sort of big-picture warning like that, or do we need more tactical, sort of detailed warning? And often the experts tend to sort of discount tactical warning. That's kind of in the weeds. But my study of, by comparing intelligence successes and failures, shows that a crucial difference is that we need to gather that tactical, sort of operational, detailed intelligence that warning that we're going to get hit sometime, as you heard and as Blue Ribbon Commissions argued, doesn't really do us much good. What we need to do is have intensive enough intelligence collection to provide actual warning of specific plots, specific dangers, and that's a lot more difficult. Then the other problem that we're facing today, I think, which is that even though our intelligence community, our national security community is huge, we spend so much of our national treasure on trying to keep us safe, Still, it's very difficult for our American national security community to focus on more than a couple of things at a time, which sounds like it must be crazy, but that's the problem you're describing there. After 9-11, we had to focus on the terrorist threat. But even then, it took us 10 years to find Osama bin Laden. Well, now we're facing so many more threats all around the world, including this renewed threat of great power competition. We have to once again focus our attention outside the U.S. to major powers around the world, but we can't keep our eye off the ball here domestically with the terrorist threat. And it's very difficult for our large national security and intelligence community to do all of that at the same time. When you look at the Japanese in 41, or you look at bin Laden, or if you look at the Chinese, they may have a totally different 
sense of what matters than we do. So that at times we find ourselves trying to project ourselves onto a particular situation, but in fact they're going to view it and analyze it from a totally different manner than we are. That's part of the problem today, that we don't have enough analysts within our intelligence and national security communities that have a really good, keen understanding of all the many different cultures and different communities and different countries that threaten us. Next, we face a greater range of threats than any other time in our history. Hi, this is Newt Gingrich. After I served as Speaker of the House, I opened my own business, Gingrich 360. As a business owner, if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. That is what NetSuite by Oracle has set out to solve, because most companies don't have a clear picture of their finances, and that is why many businesses fail. question for any business owner out there is, are you confident that you've got the right numbers at your fingertips? Serious entrepreneurs and finance teams run on NetSuite by Oracle the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite offers a full picture of all your finances, all in one place, in real time, right from your phone or your desktop. No more guessing. No more worry the way you don't know could kill your company. That's why NetSuite customers grow three times faster than the S&P 500, and you can too. Schedule your free demo right now and receive their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits at netsuite.com slash newt. Set up your free demo and get your free guide today at netsuite.com slash newt. That's netsuite.com slash newt. We probably face a greater range of cultural requirements than any country in history. I I was once at the Blue House, which is the president of South Korea. I was the speaker of the house. They were complaining that we didn't pay enough attention. And I said, you know, my dad had served there in 53. We'd had troops there ever since. We still had a four-star general there and thousands of troops. I said, but the problem is if you're an American president, when you get up in the morning, there are 200 countries that could potentially be at the top of your national security brief. And I said, you're right. I said, it's really hard for us to be able to focus enough on anywhere. And don't you think that that has compounded our risk of surprise that we now have so many different potential opponents who each have their own organizational structure and their own pattern, which can be wildly different. So when you start to train analysts, getting them to be able to actually thoroughly be immersed in one only begins the whole process. And then you got to find a way to have strategic meetings where you might have people who represent seven or nine wildly different cultural backgrounds sitting in a meeting trying to discuss what's going on. Absolutely. The former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, used to say that during his 50-year career in American intelligence, he had never seen an era as we're in today where there are more difficult challenges and more varied challenges for American intelligence. I kind of think that anybody who's been doing something at a senior and respected level for 50 years, we should listen to them. And I think that's the case. 
We just don't have the type of expertise, such as during the Cold War, when I was a young Navy intelligence officer, we could focus on one kind of enemy. And when I would fly along with our Navy reconnaissance aircraft tracking the Soviet fleet, we trusted that we understood the Soviet military, that we understood the Soviet pilot who was in that MiG fighter escorting our reconnaissance plane, and that we knew that that, that pilot was as professional as we were, that he wanted to get home at the end of the day, and he didn't want to cause trouble, and neither did we. Well, today, we're facing not just one enemy, but so many different kinds of enemies, and so many that we really still don't understand. So as you think about training young intelligence officers over the next, say, 30 years, how much would you change from the current system? One big difference, I think, today is that we need to continue to devote even more of our efforts toward what we might call domestic intelligence or homeland security intelligence. And that's such a whole different problem set from tracking Russian or Chinese adventurism around the world. That's such a different problem set when we're dealing with domestic terrorism. I think it takes a different kind of intelligence analyst, a different kind of intelligence collector, who is sort of born from the ground up thinking about issues such as civil liberties, knows how to work with state and local authorities and law enforcement. And that's not anything like what I was trained to do and what many of our national intelligence officials are trained to do. So actually, I think that we really should have a separate domestic intelligence organization, similar to the British MI5 security organization. But I just don't think there's ever going to be a political will behind doing that unless we had another major domestic attack, which obviously we don't want and we're working to prevent. Walk me through for a minute how that would differ from the FBI. The FBI is our primary domestic intelligence organization. It also is our lead federal law enforcement organization. And many observers think that's the conflict there. And I agree with them that it's difficult for the same organization and often the same analysts to use the tools of law enforcement, which often have very different legal authorities compared with the tools of intelligence. And many experts, even when the 9-11 Commission report came out and when DHS was organized, many experts thought it was a mistake not to hive off part of the FBI's intelligence arm and put that within DHS. I think there's still a problem there. We can use intelligence tools to gather information on you and me, for instance, even if we aren't necessarily doing anything wrong. But we don't want the FBI law enforcement side to be paying too much attention to us, to be gathering our information into law enforcement databases, unless there's some sort of reasonable suspicion that we're doing something wrong. Those two missions, intelligence and law enforcement, kind of rest unhappily together. They're almost antithetical to each other. You want the aggressiveness to preempt a terrorist attack, but you want the caution to protect civil liberties. And you can't possibly have the same people have both in their head. That's a great way to put it. We don't like being spied on, but we need a more aggressive domestic intelligence infrastructure. But the problem is that if it's too closely tied to our law enforcement infrastructure, that can be a problem. I think it would actually be better for civil liberties and better for American security if we had a separate larger intelligence organization within DHS that was dedicated to tracking dangers within the country and not just the kind of law enforcement and criminal and terrorist threats that the FBI tracks, 
because another reason why the FBI isn't necessarily the best place for this mission is that the FBI is a primarily domestic organization. And so many of the threats that come into our country now are actually coming from overseas. They fall into what in the intelligence community would fall into our other agencies, the other three-letter agencies within the intelligence community, the CIA, the NSA, and others. But the problem there is that those agencies don't have the authority to operate, and we don't want them to operate domestically. So we have sort of a theme there. When a threat comes from overseas and comes into this country, it's not always clear uh, just who, whose job it is to track that. So from that standpoint, you really have to have, I think, a serious national debate about how we reorganize here at home. In addition, though, it seems to me, when you look at the rise of cyber capabilities, and I've talked a little bit with people in the Pentagon about this, we'd organize the world around a series of combatant commands. We have one for the Middle East, one for Latin America, one for the Indo-Pacific. But the reality may be, when you start talking about cyber campaigns and space-based campaigns, you may need almost a global headquarters that can move in real time because that's the speed at which the campaign will be fought. We've divided up the world for many decades now into what we call the combatant commands. It has so far been a structure that has worked pretty well to organize our vast military and intelligence national security responsibilities. The threats today can get at you more easily. And when we have our forces divided up into mostly regionally organized combatant commands. The problem is there can be seams between them. We don't have one single command dedicated to taking that global look. Maybe the only example I could think of would be Special Operations Command, which does look globally, but they have very specific focus. We have the Joint Staff and we have the Office of Secretary of Defense Staff in the Pentagon, but they're not operational organizations. They're not in the weeds as much as we need somebody to be. You would think that after all of the years we've had of doing pretty good intelligence, having a long track record of this stuff, you'd think we would just be more disciplined and more professional. But in the end, cognitive dissonance is very powerful. And if you're trying to tell me something I don't want to learn, I have all sorts of pretty good devices for not learning it. Absolutely. Uh, and there have been a lot of studies of intelligence community behavior and when do leaders listen to intelligence or not. And as you say, we have that problem in the intelligence business all the time, that if a leader is not interested in listening to the assessment, that isn't a good situation. What is it you wish the American people expected from the intelligence community? And what is it you wish the American people were asking of their members of Congress in order to get what they should expect? I certainly think that we need to have a better and more educated national debate about intelligence, about what it is, about how we gather it. And we need to somehow get beyond that allergy to domestic intelligence, even though, of course, as Americans, sort of it's in our DNA. We don't like people watching us. We don't like people collecting information on us. But I think that we need to have a better debate about that. We need to have Americans understand better what intelligence does. It shouldn't be considered a totally separate function of government that's out there and it's secret and we really can't talk about it. That's how we used to look at it during the Cold War. Whatever was going on was over there. And for the most part, our citizens and many of our national leaders were happy to let uh, American intelligence and national security do what it did as long as it kept us safe. But the trouble is that 
these threats can so easily now affect all of us individually and personally. So how do we keep ourselves safe while at the same time gathering the intelligence that we need not to overrun our civil liberties? That's a real challenge, but the first step is to have a better national debate and discussion. Thank you very, very much. Thanks. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you to my guests, Steve Toomey and Eric Dahl. You can read more about surprise attacks and view excerpts of my guests' books on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Westwood One. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our editor is Robert Borowski, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. Our guest booker is Tamara Coleman. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's John Wardock and Robert Mathers. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, Missy and Michael Owen lost their firstborn son, Davis Henry Owen, to a drug overdose in March 2014. Their personal story is exemplary of the struggle with opioids America's facing today. We didn't have anybody that we could reach out to, and if we had had somewhere to turn or reach out and ask for information, we could have had a totally different outcome. But back then, the stigma was so great, and nobody wanted to let people know that in their family there was somebody who was addicted to drugs. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. The Westwood One Podcast Network. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media. But now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep.
Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast.